Well, thank you for giving up an afternoon, I think. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. The, the talk today is close to my heart because it took me a long while to get to it. Uh, there's a line in somewhere in Alistair Mac one of Alistair McIntyre's books where he says a professional is a person without place. And the first time I ran across that, it sort of shocked me. And then I realized he was absolutely right. That as a physician, it didn't matter where I was in the world as long as what I needed in terms of equipment was available. Um, and he would, Alistair McIntyre was implying that that was not good news. And it isn't, of course. The, 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 the gradual loss of place in our lives is not turning out to be good. And I had to learn that the long way. As you know, I've said during this, this series of talks that I spent a large part of my life dealing with 10 pound two year olds in the developing world. And, uh, by the time we'd finished the science in Jamaica, I thought it was mission accomplished. The group in Jamaica had been running for 25 years, and I had the good fortune to be there, part of the group for the last five years, when everything came together. So shortly before I left Jamaica, we went through 100 10-pound two-year-olds and saved every one. In other words, the science is cracked. It's somewhat counterintuitive, and the result of that is that do-gooders still refuse to apply it, because it's very hard for them to do. Um, I watched the literature after that expecting to see malnutrition rates drop, and they didn't change. In fact, they've got slightly worse enough over the last 25, 30 years. In the late 80s, I was bullied into going to Africa. I had no desire to go, but we took some missionaries out to lunch. They discovered very rapidly that I knew as much about the treatment of severely malnourished children as anyone in the world at that point, and they said, you have to come and help us. And I said... In principle, yes, and under my breath, in practice, no. Uh, but my wife and kids said, that's a great idea, you're due a sabbatical, we're all coming. And I had a family war on my hands, and to cut a long story short, I lost. And off we went to Africa. Now, I wasn't so arrogant as to think that I would be able to do what others had not done. I'd been following the literature, I knew there had never been a successful nutrition education program in sub-Saharan Africa if you put into the criteria the removal of all expatriate input for five years before you evaluate. In other words, no one had enculturated new ideas. You need to understand that the problem of malnutrition is not, that I was concerned with, is not malnutrition occurring following war and famine. Everybody gets malnourished then. The problem for me is that I can go into any village in sub-Saharan Africa at the best time of the year, the beginning of the dry season, and 5% of the children in the village will benefit from my help, but I don't need to take any food with me. I can find it in the village. That's a problem. And I didn't understand that problem. So off we went to Africa, and as I told you this morning, I trained my teenagers to do the work, and they did it very well, and it worked. And I trained an African to run the program, and he understood it, and he did it. But when I came back nine months later, I could already measure the decline in the effectiveness of the program. It was small, but I was reasonably sophisticated in those areas. There were already some clues. I had given him some money to collect some data from the village I'd wanted to go to and hadn't had time to do. When I looked at his data, I gave it back to him and said, you fabricated this data, 
it's not real. Uh, initially, he denied it, and I said, don't make it worse by lying. I know that you didn't collect this data. He spent all summer, of course, bugging me to know how I knew, but he did admit that he'd just made it up. And he went and got some data that at least satisfied me that it was possibly real. He wasn't intrinsically a dishonest man. He just simply didn't see the point of what I was doing. And for him to walk for half a day, collect the data and walk for half a day back, when he could sit down and write a set of data, which from his point of view was just as good, why would he bother? I didn't put everything together at that point, but I realized I was up against a culture that was very different from mine. The next clue to this was the missionaries were always complaining that the guys in the pharmacy were stealing. Now, by any business model that you would use here, they were. You could count the medicines at the beginning of the day and the money at the end of the day, and there was always a gap. There was less money than there ought to be for the medicines that had gone that day. But they were Christian guys, and I didn't think that they were intrinsically dishonest. Uh, the missionaries were rather more judgmental in that sense, and said, of course they are. Uh, well, from our point of view, they were, but to me, it was a mystery. And so then I went to talk to them. And then I began the next stage of my education. And it turned out, of course, that if their brother came to the pharmacy window with a prescription, but only half the money, it was their duty, since they could do it, to give him all the drugs. They weren't dishonest, they were living in a different ethical system. A different understanding of what the duties of people are. They were being honourable in their system. That was another clue. Now, my wife, whom you've been introduced to a little bit, was not pleased with the amount of work I was doing when I discovered the programme wasn't running as effectively as I'd hoped. Uh, and I wasn't saving enough lives for her satisfaction. To which my response was, well, I'm thinking. And she said, looks to me as though you're doing nothing. And I said, that's what thinking looks like to you. And so the argument went on for a bit, but in the end she won, when she said, you ought to be teaching at least the scriptures to the graduates in the village who are unemployed. Now, that hit me like a two-by-four over the head. Because if I've had a student in my class, even a biochemistry class, for a year, uh, they may be unemployed in the future in the sense of being unpaid, but not in unemployed in the sense of having something to do. I ought to send them away with a desire to read and learn and study that cannot be fulfilled in a reasonable lifetime, if I've done a good job. But these guys have gone to university, so-called, and the only thing they'd actually learned is that they preferred wearing a white collar and not getting their hands dirty. That was not actually progress. So I said, yeah, that, that's a reasonable thing to do. And so we arranged it, and they were very pleased about that. Now, it so happens that I had the great privilege, not so long before that, of listening to one of America's greatest scholars, Bruce Walkey, an Old Testament scholar, talking about covenant in Ottawa. And he had got on my case, in a sense. He didn't intend to, but he had. He made a comment which unveiled another chunk of ignorance in my life. He said, if you ask an Orthodox Jew why the Jews survive, he said, they will tell you, read Deuteronomy 6. 
and I didn't know what was really at stake, and I had to go and do some work. You see, the, the survival of the Jews really is one of the most amazing things in the whole of history, isn't it? If I took you Americans to the airport now, and put you on an airplane, and flew you somewhere in the world, I'll be kind to you, I know you're unilingual, and dump you in an allegedly English-speaking country, and you're never ever going to come back to the U.S., how long would your family be identifiable as American? 2,000 years? Not a hope. You'd be enculturated. If you're Canadian, you probably wouldn't need more than six weeks to enculturate. Being the nicest people in the world, we enculturate immediately. You know, that's the way it goes. But the Jews, no. And if you ask Jews why, they say, well, we took Deuteronomy 6 seriously. Well, Deuteronomy 6 is the Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. But it's what comes next that was so fascinating to me. Anybody complete the verse for me? Yeah, half of it. Half of it. Did you, any, did you hear what he said? How many of you, well, that's good, because then I can ask the rest of you. How many of you were thinking, and your neighbor is yourself? How many of you were not thinking? Just one. So the rest are asleep. Shall we just go away and talk and leave them to it? What it is, is fascinating. These things shall be upon your heart. It's not and your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus. Normally, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. That's his favorite book. But on this, that occasion in the New Testament, he quoted Leviticus. But Deuteronomy is, these things shall be upon your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children when you sit at table, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you go on a journey. See the point I made about Wendell Berry and Miss Minnie the other day? Teaching is not a skill. Teaching is the conjunction of two passions. It must be upon your heart. And you must be diligently careful. Child. That's why parents make such good teachers. They actually love the student. It's a great start. And they love learning. So when they decide to do homeschooling, they really put a lot of effort into it. The average homeschool kid is ready for university at 14. With all the resources available now on the net and the like, it's amazing what can be achieved. So I had to start thinking about that and what it meant. And of course, as a pediatrician, with a, I love watching children. More than anything else, I think, for pleasure, I would just sit and watch small children behaving. You have to have a certain twisted sense of humor to enjoy that, I realize. But, but nevertheless, they are amazing creatures. And the thing that amazes me, I can easily draw out of you. What is the difference between the response of a seven-year-old to the question, would you like a story, and the response of an under five? Now, while you're thinking about it, I'll tell you my answer. Watch your faces, and I will know whether you read to children. The seven-year-old will go to her bedroom and she'll bring you the book she's in the middle of and she'll milk you for as many chapters as you will read, right? Just one more. Just one more. An hour can easily go. But the under five goes to the cupboard, even in our house, and gets a book, his or her favorite, and says, read this. Now, I get bored easily. I've read it before. I try and shorten it. Not enough of you read to children, but a lot do. Grandad, read it properly. The little brat has brought me a book he knows every word of. So, why does he want me to read it? 
Now, I've thought about this a lot. Every culture I've been in, under fives, want word-perfect stories. Interesting, isn't it? So whether you're a Darwinist or a creationist, you've got to ask what God or nature is up to here. It's hardwired. Children have an absolute need for repeated stories in their lives. And they want to know them word-perfect. Of course, our education process no longer makes use of the incredible capacity of small children to memorize. That's the time to do memorization. It's no problem to them at all. Give them a psalm, they'll memorize it. Give them a story, they'll memorize it. Give them a language, they'll memorize it. No problem. So the medievals understood that. So the first task of education was grammar, memorization. The second one, logic, and the third one, rhetoric. We turn it on its head and tell two-year-olds they're being creative, and they know they're not. All it does is make them think that education and teachers are dumb. When they do rotten work, you should say so. Then they begin to realize there might be standards. That's important. So I started thinking about this. What was going on here? The, 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 the clue next was, of course, to look at the nature of the stories and then the penny drop. See, the stories are very different in different parts of the world, and the story you inhabit, the story you grow up with as the foundation for your life, has a huge impact on you. You are today, to a considerable degree, a product of the story that was central to you. Now, 50 years ago in this place, the story would be easy. Now the story is mixed. Fifty years ago, there's no question that the story in America would be the Bible. Students at this college 50 years ago would know all the stories of the Bible by heart because that would have been what you heard. The Bible would have been read morning and evening and there was no television and no radio. That was actually better. Uh, if you grew up in a Jewish home, of course, you'd only get the Old Testament stories. If you grew up in the Islamic world, you'd only have the Quranic stories. If you grow up in Africa, you get the proverbs that every village has. Now, the point about these stories, I think, is that children are trying to find out who they are and what kind of people we are. They're learning how to behave. And they're hardwired to understand that that is found from stories. So, if your children grow up with the Old Testament, you will produce a cultural Jew and Jewish ethics. If they grow up with the Bible, you get a cultural Christian and Christian ethics, and so on. If they grow up in Africa, you get a pagan. And the stories are different, we'll come back to them. The real problem, of course, is what's the repeated story in the lives of American children today? Is it the Bible? What is it? Which bit of TV? Hmm? Cartoon, Sesame Street? Yes and no, there's one that's more repeated than that. Commercials. Advertising. Now, if you don't believe me, this is important especially if you're, you're in education, pollute your mind for a little while and watch television and make clues to the ads that are running and think of the ads that have been running over the last year or two and write some clues to them. Then write a set of clues to the Bible stories. As simple as who was born in a major, who floated on the sea for 40 days, those kinds of clues. And then go to your church and test the eight-year-olds. Which are they going to do best at? Commercials. You remember almost all the commercials you saw as a child, don't you? The jingles. You probably sing them all. 
They don't do it for nothing. They do it because they have imprinted you. As Wendell Berry says, the capitalists tell us, don't call us, we'll call you. And it's advertising. Now, what virtues do you get from television advertising? What is legitimated by television advertising? Hmm? Any offers? Indulgence, yeah? Whatever you want, yeah. Your desires on the spot. And are there any good things taught there? Not much, is there? Drunkenness is legitimated. Unregulated sexuality is legitimated. Covetousness is a virtue, not a forbidden sin. And it's got so subtle that they can communicate it with extreme ease. What's this for? Hmm? What does it mean? Just do it. And is America just doing it? Yes, it is. That's the problem. The, the cultural, we all inhabit cultural stories. The only question is whether it's a good one or a bad one, or where it fits. And some stories are incompatible with some ways of thinking. I had to learn that. So the next step in this journey of exploration was in an African village up in the Itumbi Mountains and doing a training session for a few days with 35 healthcare workers. And being the cynic I am, uh, the first thing I did was give them weight data and the charts that we use as the basis for finding out who's becoming malnourished and ask them to fill them in. But the data I'd given them was not a normal curve. 34 of the 35 produced a normal growth curve from the data. In other words, they didn't see the data as something they needed to plot. They saw the plot as something they needed to give to me, and they thought that I wanted a nice normal growth chart of a nice normal Africa. Whereas actually, I'd given them some very unusual looking weight charts. It took two days to get them to the point where they would actually plot the data that was given to them. Because I'd already worked out that the data in the clinics is not really reliable. That's why I began to do other things. They wanted to give the missionary doctors and the people running the healthcare system the data they thought they wanted, because that's culturally the right thing to do. They had no respect for data. The, the man who'd fabricated data for me, in that case he wanted to give me data that I would accept, that's all. That was sufficient for him. There was no respect for data as such. Now, about... So they didn't get the lectures and the teaching they thought they were going to get because I wanted that first and foremost. And by about the Thursday of that week, I'd done all that I thought could be achieved in that session. And I said to the Africans who were with me, look, you can do the last day in the tribal language. I'm going to walk back on my own because it's my daughter's birthday and I want to be back at the mission hospital for that. And they said, I'm sorry, we don't have anyone to go with you. It was, a, it was a day's walk, a few hours through the rainforest and then down a mountain. I said, I don't need anyone to go with me. I can go on my own. And they were very upset about that, and they didn't want me to do it, but of course I did. Uh, nothing happened to me. But I was interested and then began to realize when I questioned them that they would not go through the, the rainforest alone. Not for any named fear, but they feared their environment, and I didn't. A different world, 
a different understanding of what was going on. Not long after that, I said to the local pastor, who I always asked when I was going to make a journey anywhere, whether that was a reasonable thing to do. And this amazing man would always go and pray about it and then come back and say whether I could or couldn't go. And I would take his advice. But on this occasion, he said, yes, you can go that way. I wouldn't go that way. That you'll be all right. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you have a stronger spirit. For, for us Africans, that's not a way that we would go. Fear of the environment. A different world. A different understanding of the world. And of course, within that understanding, you shouldn't laugh at it, animism is a better explanation for the world as it's experienced than Christianity is in, this, in Central Africa. If you stand in an African village and look around, and you know that perhaps half the children will not make it to adult life, that the crops will fail at random over the next few years, and you have the worst governments in the world, how much evidence is there of a God of love in that? Not very much. But evil spirits make perfect sense. They even explain the vagaries of why, when measles comes, the children die in this family and not in that family. And of course, even what we do to them, the things that they accept, they accept because they can be understood as magic. If you come along and inject the children with a tiny amount of clear fluid, and the ones you injected don't get measles, and the ones you didn't do, they don't think, they just think it's powerful magic. It's, expla it's explained easily in that way. So they can accept that. It, it fits their understanding of the world. And then Africans are smart, go around injecting water and charging for it, and all they deliver, of course, is an abscess. But it's acceptable. It fits the understanding of the world. It's an astonishing thing to think about. Now, it happened that on one of those trips, I ended up teaching in South Africa at the end of the trip because I, I had a good friend who was professor of pediatrics in the University of in, in Cape in Johannesburg. And he'd arranged an amazing trip for me. I ended up on that particular trip teaching in every pediatric department in the University Medical School in South Africa, as well as teaching in Soweto in Baraguanas Hospital, and a few other exciting things on the side. And he'd arranged all that. And interestingly enough, he, he saved till last the medical school at Pretoria, which was the Afrikaans medical school. This was, apartheid was still in place at this time. And he told me what, why he had done that. He said, he's, he was not a Christian. This man is now 80 and almost a Christian, so close that every time I go to South Africa, he's a bit closer. His wife can't wait for the final move, neither can I. I hope he gets there before death. So that so close. But he said, look, I've left the Afrikaners till last, and I've actually arranged for you to stay with the family of a Bruderbonder, which were the most hard line of the Afrikaners. Incidentally, on that trip, that was the only family that said grace. And he, he warned me what would happen. He said, the Afrikaners will ask you this question. They will say that when we arrived in the Cape three centuries ago and met the Zulus coming from the north, the Hottentots were wiped out between the two. We had nothing, and the Zulus had nothing. Now, a few centuries later, the Afrikaners are doing well. There was no malnutrition. The Zulus had lots of malnutrition. The clear implication being, there's something wrong with them. So as I was giving my lecture on malnutrition, this question was, I knew it was going to come up. 
And then the answer clicked. I just read an essay by Butterfield, I think, on Isaac Newton, and one sentence had stuck in my mind. Uh, Butterfield said, if Newton had not had his God, he would not have gone looking for his laws. In other words, there has to be intellectual infrastructure for certain thoughts to be even possible. And so, he came to, together in my mind, and I, I said in the middle of the lecture to the medical students, I want to answer a question now that I know you're going to ask me at the end of the lecture if I don't answer it now. You're going to say to me, what's the difference between us and the Zulu? Why can't they get their act together and feed their children properly? Are they dumb or something? And I, I want to tell you that, in fact, you weren't equal several centuries ago when your forefathers arrived from Europe and the Zulus arrived from the north. You came believing in a covenant-keeping God who, if you kept his law, would bless your actions and you would flourish. They came believing the world was controlled by evil spirits and the best they could do is shake their fist or placate them. And you did not share that understanding in any real way with them. And that is the difference. And to my great astonishment and joy, those Africana students burst into applause. They acknowledged the truth of what I'd said. And that was the beginning of something which I saw play out later on. Uh, it was happening not many places. And that was the recognition amongst Christians in South Africa that they had not shared the gospel in an effective way. They'd shared it in the propositional type gospel, but they hadn't dug deep into the faith. And it's because of the repentance on that level, I think, and because of the mercy of God, that, that the ending of apartheid was peaceful. That was a miracle, actually. There were several miracles on the way, including an airplane that developed an apparent fault and had to go back to the airport so that two people could meet. There was nothing wrong with the plane, as it turned out. But if that meeting hadn't taken place, there would almost certainly have been bloodshed between the Zulus and the others. Uh, God was kind to South Africa in that setting, and the Afrikaners were repentant. They are, by and large. But the stories remain difficult. See, it takes a long while for thought patterns to change. A very, very long while. The first graph, for instance, was actually made in Oxford in probably the 13th or 14th century. It took at least a century to understand what it meant. We teach it now in a couple of weeks in kindergarten. It's not because we've got brighter. It's because the presuppositions of the society are deeply enculturated. Everybody knows what these things mean. It's part of the common understanding. The story really does matter. Most African children grow up with animal proverbs, basically, stories. Largely, they're stories in which a small animal, like a rabbit or a spider, beats a big animal by trickery. Does that explain why you get all those emails from Nigeria saying, we have a million dollars in a bank account, we just need your bank account number in order to transfer the money? You see, a trickster in Nigeria is actually a hero. Because from this high, it's trickery that is the thing that makes the story important. That story crosses the Atlantic into the Caribbean in the Anansi stories and even shows up in the southern United States. They last centuries. 
And, of course, we're heading now towards a story which is less effective than it was. And it's showing up in multiple ways. As I said this morning, we no longer have a moral consensus. And we are logical, but slowly. Those people who believe that Darwin is right, why will they not start behaving like Darwinists? They will. They are. Those two stories lead to different societies. It's an astonishing thing to think about. Now, if you really want to think your way through this whole story, you have to go back to the whole question of what Deuteronomy was about. And for evangelicals, it's a very important thing to think about. Deuteronomy is really, in my view, the world's greatest commencement address. If you ever have to give a commencement address and you don't know what to do, just plagiarize Deuteronomy. You'll do fine. And it has lots of amazing stories in it. Here's Moses sitting with the children of Israel. He's not going to go into the Promised Land. He doesn't get there. But he's telling them what will be necessary if they are to flourish as a people. And the first thing he does is he tells them something very politically incorrect. He says, you have a possession, your greatest possession, and you might not recognize what it is. What was the greatest possession of the Jews? Hmm? The law, that's right, Torah. He says, all the people around you will look at this law and say, what a wise people it is that has a law like this and a God so close to us as our God whenever we call upon him. That's very politically incorrect, isn't it? There's no multiculturalism here. This, says Moses, is the best that the world has ever seen. The world all has the image of God within. Wherever you go in the world, people know that you ought not to do gratuitous harm. They know that friendship is good. But this one is explicit to a much greater degree. And then he goes on and says something to the Jews, which we as evangelicals need to think about very deeply. He reminds them of their experience of God at Mount Sinai. Thunder and lightning and a volcano and God speaking the Ten Commandments. Now, I feel I'm fairly safe ground in saying that none of you had a conversion experience quite like that, right? Now, what did they do with that experience? Well, they said, we will obey, and then Moses went up the mountain. And what did they do while Moses was going up the mountain? That's right. They broke the first three commandments in order. Not a bad deal, right? In other words, the experience of God does not make you good. In the Christian sense, it makes you redeemed. And in the Judaic sense, it took away any possibility that anyone who was there would not believe in God. It wasn't an option after that experience. But it did not change their behavior. God actually says to Moses, I have heard all that this people have said, their vow to be obedient. Oh, that they would have such a heart and mind as this to keep my law, that it might go well with them and their children forever. See, the law is to be understood that way. Many of you probably say, I live under grace, not under law, right? That's correct. It's also false. Does that mean that the law has passed away? No. No. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. 
not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, do we still have murder around? Do we still have adultery, theft? Of course we do. The law is still operative at that level. But what has happened for us is the law now has a different function. There it was merely condemnatory. Now it is to teach us who we are and to give us guidelines for flourishing. As Paul puts it later, the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was only when the law said, Thou shalt not covet, that Paul understood that he was a sinner. The law is an important part of our life as born-again evangelical Christian. It hasn't passed away. In fact, it is not even to be understood as a burden. It is to be understood as the framework within which freedom can happen. I explained to you in an earlier lecture how total intolerance of theft produces the freedom of not requiring a locksmith in a village. You, I hope, in this college do not need to lock your things up. That's good. That's wonderful. But it will not survive if we do not inculturate our children into the story in great depth. If they grow up with the television stories, they will have television ethics. Some of you probably do. Some of you didn't get the early education that you need. I often say now, I say it all the while, especially to young couples when their children come along, that it is the man's job to tell all the stories of the Bible to the children before the age of eight or the age of seven. And the reason for this the reason he has to do it is that children have hypocrisy detectors. Have you noticed that? All children are well endowed with hypocrisy detectors. And if Dad says the stories of the Bible are very important, but he never shows up to tell them, you know what? They don't believe him. Mom will do it anyway. That's why it's Dad's job to do it. I think, by the way, that's why Paul... Uh, one of the main reasons why Paul said women shouldn't leave the church. Because when they do, men say, great, now I can go and play golf. Uh, men will always play games if women will do the work. And that doesn't lead to a stable society. There are, I think, many other reasons as well, but I think that's quite a major one, actually. Getting men to take their duties seriously is very hard. Women know what babies are about before they have them. You know, It's always fun as a pediatrician to put a baby in the hands of a female medical student, and they will quite often say, give it back and say, I don't know whether I can handle this, I'm having maternal urges. I've never ever heard a guy say, I'm having paternal urges. That doesn't happen until they get their own child. A guy changes at that moment when his first child is put in his arms. The next day, he actually cares who's looking after the crossings and the playgrounds and all those kinds of things. He never gave it a thought beforehand. But now, it's the most civilizing moment that occurs in a man's life. And the more you get them involved, the better. But Moses was teaching the children of Israel that they had not understood, the law had not, the experience of God had not made them good. It had changed their relationship to God, but it had not changed them. And that's where childcare comes in. He says, if you want to do this, it's by telling the stories to the children that you will do it. What you're doing is you're putting into their mind stories that make moral sense. What's the difference between American history and Jewish history? 
you take the big picture and look at it. What's the nature of the ratio between heroes and disasters in Jewish history and American history? Haven't you noticed? You brush all your heroes up and you get rid of your villains, like all societies except the Jews do. No one else in the world has a history which goes, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, I don't know, 20 times in a row. No, all our guys are good. All heroes. Robin Hood, who was basically a thug, becomes, you know, some kind of hero. That's the way we do it, but not the Jews. The result is that Jews are very rarely taken for a ride because they're realistic about human nature. The stories were put in at the right time. You should read all the stories to your children, including the one about the Levite who chops up his concubine and sends her around the country to start a war, you know. Uh, kids hearing that story go, Ugh! but as long as you're there, they're perfectly safe, you know. And what they're learning is moral consequence. Television is a morally inconsequential medium, isn't it? It teaches you that you can pop into bed with a different person every day and it makes not a scrap of difference. That's simply a lie. It's not true. It teaches you that you are going to have sex before marriage, and then one day you're going to say to someone, I love you so much I can't imagine ever living without you again. And you know that you've said that several times before, and you know that he said that several times before. It doesn't make for a great deal of easy believing, does it? Life is morally consequential. What you've done is who you are. And that's what's taught in that process. Now, you can take this argument on to the next step, can't you? What happened, just to finish the Africa story, was quite remarkable, actually. As I began to work my way through this stuff and do this Bible study with the Africans, I actually had a translator sent to me by dream. That's quite an extraordinary experience. Uh, after a, a few days uh, of doing this, the Africans quite rightly wish to go from English to the tribal language rather than via my rather bad French. My wife spoke good French, so we managed okay, but it was a bit tedious. And then one of them said, but there is someone who can go from English to the tribal language. He was five kilometers away. Now, an interesting story. He was a man who'd grown up in Tanzania as a Muslim and learned English as a child, spoke good English. And he'd become discontented with Islam. And he had a recurrent dream telling him to go and talk to the Christians. It took a long while, but the dream was so insistent that in the end he did. And he only had to hear the gospel once, and he was given faith, believed and was baptized. Then a little later he had another dream telling him to go to Zaire. So he packed his wife up and walked about a thousand kilometers. And he did not know why. And he became my translator every year after that. And he spent the last 10 years, obviously, doing all my talks in the refugee camps because he knew them all by heart in a few months. An amazing way to duplicate teaching. But so Mapendo turned up and became my translator. Then the elders of the, the church in the tribe, uh, and the whole tribe was of one denomination, heard that I was teaching the young men and said, invited me in a way that I could not refuse to come and talk to them. So I had to uh, tell them what I'd been doing, 
and then a day or so afterwards I was informed that I was going to teach the annual meeting of the church, uh, Deuteronomy 4 through 6, uh, one afternoon. And I had the amazing experience of teaching, I guess, six or 7,000 people out of doors, Deuteronomy 6. Obviously, they'd rigged up uh, amplification from the Pendo. Obviously, I didn't need to shower. But they had a row of D-cells about this long, because no electricity in the area. But it worked. And within a day or so, my wife was being driven from A to B by the man who drives us every year there. And he said this. He said, I heard John speak about the duties of fathers. And then he did something profoundly countercultural. He obeyed. Because in that tribe, the men never eat with their children until they reach puberty, and then only with the boys. And the men eat first and take the best food, and the women and children are left to pick over what's left. It's not that they're malicious, it's just they think that's the way it ought to be. It's been that way forever. Now, when they were always in tribal warfare, the men could rationalize it on the grounds that they had to fight, so that they haven't been fighting for some years, they don't do anything. The women do all the work. Uh, most of the men just sit around. But this man who worked for us as a driver said he went and had a meal with his children for the first time. Now, they eat from a common pot. I've got lots of photographs showing the, the women and children around the common pot afterwards with the little runt on the outside not getting his fair share. He's doomed. He's not going to make it. But Abdallah said, I saw that one of my children was a slow eater, so I gave him his own plate. Thirty years of nutrition education in the area had made no difference at all. One afternoon of the exposition of Deuteronomy 6, and malnutrition was gone in that family. We always take our technology and don't understand why it doesn't work. And because we've forgotten to value the scriptures, we don't teach them the way we should. I could take you to probably 25 mills within walking distance of the base hospital uh, that we use, none of which work. Most of them donated by good-hearted Americans. They come and see women pounding car uh, corn for eight hours a day, and they say that's ridiculous. So next time they come either with the mill or the money to buy the mill, and they donate a mill to the village. And it works for a little while, and then it doesn't. Because, you see, if causation is by evil spirits, even a machine that stops does so because an evil spirit did it, not because you didn't put oil on it. The idea of maintenance is unthinkable in a pagan culture. Now, it can be taught, as you are taught by rote, you can get some of those things across, but it can't really get deeply into the culture. When you've seen a nurse pick up a needle off the floor and put it into a vein before you could stop it, not intending to do anything awful, but just thinking, I dropped it, pick it up quickly, put it in. Because illness is not caused by microbes. After all, they've never seen them. It's caused by evil spirits. We have had, I've put students in many villages during the, these years, to do surveys for me. And one group of students told me a lovely illustration of this. We put a, a well into that village, and when the students went to stay there, the first thing the villagers did was show them with great pride their well. But the students noticed that they didn't actually drink the water from the well. 
They used it for washing, but they still drank the water from the nearby stream, which of course sparkled in the sunlight and looked beautifully clear, whereas the water coming out of the well was muddy. But the muddy water was bacteriologically clean, and the sparkling water from the, the river contained typhoid, schistosoma, and goodness knows what else. But they still preferred to drink that because evil spirits live underground. So water coming out from under the ground obviously contained evil spirits. Technology does not transfer without its intellectual underpinnings. The story we inhabit matters. Now this is going to matter even in America because we are being increasingly dominated by an elite few who no longer inhabit our story. We are doing extraordinary things as a result of it. Bioethics, for instance, is dominated by what Stanley Hauerwas wonderfully calls otherwise unemployable philosophers. Most of them are tacit atheists. They don't say there is no God, but they behave as though there is no God, and they teach utilitarian ethics. We don't belong there. That's not us. We say that we teach medicine on a patient-centered basis, but we teach ethics on a very unpatient-centered basis, because I don't think I've ever seen a tacit utilitarian die, a tacit atheistic utilitarian die. What I've seen die, time and time and time again, is what I call thinned-out Christians. Insofar as they have any understanding of death and suffering and justice and injustice, it's a Judeo-Christian understanding, but unfortunately nowhere near as rich as it was in their grandparents' time. Canada is the most multicultural nation on earth, by quite a long way, on a per capita basis. And we also collect good statistical data on our population, which you don't, because you have hang-ups about church and state. We don't. So every 10 years, stats can actually ask Canadians what they believe. The good thing about it is that you buy our data. So we actually have a government agency that pays for itself, courtesy of the Americans. We do that quite often, as you may have noticed. We don't bother with an army. Why should we? But on the other account, you should remember that the population of Canada is somewhat less than California, in the world's second biggest country. But every 10 years, Canada asks Canadians what they believe. Now, SatsCan is a good organization. They do their work well, and they realize that many Canadians don't actually know what they believe. So their solution to this was to give them a list of all the world's known religions, everything from atheism to Zoroastrianism. And it included Satanism and nothing. The whole caboodle is in there. Now, if you got landed with the subsample that was required for this data, you had to fill that form in. And in Canada, you have to fill in your census form, otherwise you get chased. And I know what Canadians did. They looked at the form and said, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Because they had a clue what most of the things meant. And they found out what they were by knowing what they were not. I'm not a Zoroastrian. Didn't know there was such a thing. And I'm not a nothing. I'm not an atheist, and I'm not actually a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu. Oh dear, I must be Christian. And Canada is a country of, oh dear, I must be Christian people. 
They're not proud of the facts, but when they think about it, that's all they've got. Thinned out Judeo-Christian thought. And in the end, our population is stable because our immigration rate and our abortion rates are exactly matched at about uh, 100,000 a year, like everything else, a tenth of the size of the U.S. So, in 1991, 30 million or so Canadians. In the end, nearly 14 million decided that if they were anything, they were Catholic. Nearly 10 million decided if they were anything, they were Protestant. Your ratio would be reversed and a bit more. What do you think was the third biggest group in Canada, the third biggest religion? Muslims is the obvious answer, and it's wrong. Thank you. Any other offers? What? Agnostic? No, that's far too complicated. Most people don't know what it means. It's nothingness. No known religion. In 1991, it was just under 4 million. It's the only religion that's grown in the last 10 years significantly. It's gone up by almost 50%. And in Britain, nearly 16 million Brits decided they were nothings. And several hundred thousand wrote in that they were Jedi Knights. This is where you live. Do you begin to see the problem with the Gospel when that degree of cultural decay has taken place? We are part of it because we're biblically illiterate and we don't understand how important it is not to be biblically illiterate. You see, have you noticed that most often you don't have to think about whether an action is right or wrong, do you? You don't do it by analysis. You know. And you know, I think, by reference to the stories that have been stored away in your mind. How many of the women here can recognize the character at stake in the phrase, for such a time as this? Raise your hand if you know. One. That is tragic. You're not a woman. You see, you ought to know, because it's Esther. And if you really understood what the phrase for such a time as this meant, you could not not know what courage is for a woman. And 30 years ago, you would have known. What it means is that we're being eroded. Now the guys, to get you so that you realize that here's one that you should know. It's a very famous telegram, allegedly sent from Dunkirk to London in 1940, as the British were being pushed into the sea. Just three words, but if not, raise your hand if you know what it means. Two, three, and one of you has heard me before, so that doesn't count. You all actually know it. It goes like this. Be it known unto you, King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to save us from the fiery furnace. But if not, we will not bend the knee. What a magnificent telegram to send under those circumstances. But how much more magnificent it was immediately understood. Why? Because when I went to school in England, and certainly then, every day there was a hymn, a chapter from the Bible, a prayer. After 12 years of that, you knew your Bible stories. And that meant you had a whole language that was richer than it is today. Because we have lost this telling of the stories and the 
the building of the culture on that basis. When you go to your English lit classes, you understand every word in a sentence and miss the meaning. Here's a poem that I'm sure you've introduced them to. It has the line, Standing amid the alien corn. Now, your Americans, I'll make it easy for you. The corn was wheat, but who is it? Who knows? Raise your hand if you know. That's encouraging for you, is it? You all actually know it. It's the story of Ruth. Ruth, the widow, with her widowed mother-in-law, coming back to Israel as a refugee, poverty-stricken, dependent on the Jewish gleaning laws for survival, and with Boaz, the kinsman-redeemer, the picture of Christ, standing in the field as she was gleaning. Five words, the whole of that story, understood 150 years ago when that poem was written. Not understood today. That is not progress. Now, what I hope you're going to do, I hope many of you have already decided, any of you decided that your children are going to know the stories of the Bible before the age of seven? Good. You ought to say so to someone so they can hold you accountable. Let me tell you what happens. I get probably once a month at least an email or a conversation about this talk. Some of them are so beautiful that they almost reduce you to tears. Just uh, a week or two ago in Texas, a grandmother, and sometimes it's grandmothers who come, came up to me and said, I want to tell you about my grandson and what you've done to him. Her daughter-in-law, or a daughter, I can't remember which, had taken this little boy to the pediatrician. When he'd finished with him, the pediatrician was talking to mum, and the little boy disappeared under the couch behind the overhanging sheet. And when mum and the pediatrician had finished, she called him and said, Johnny, it's time to go. And out from under the sheet came, You'll have to wait, I'm in the Holy of Holies. Now the point is, that child knows his Bible stories. I had another one, again, amazingly, in Texas, where I was being entertained way beyond the call of any uh, courtesy by uh, a young doctor and his wife, who was a lawyer. Now, she was very pretty. I'm sure she won all her cases before the guys had got their minds in gear. But he, had, uh, I said to them on the second night at a very nice hotel, uh, a very nice restaurant, that this was beyond the call of duty. And they said, no, you've done so much good for us. I said, how come? We haven't met till yesterday. And they said, oh, yes, we have. We heard you speak in Florida five years earlier. We heard you talk about the raising of children in the Jewish fashion. The guy said, I'm going to do that. And he had. He'd gone back and totally reorganized his practice so that he was home by five o'clock every day. And he had a meal with his daughter and his wife. And he read to her, put her to bed. And then he went back and did his office work. And he said, watch this. And he turned to this little four-and-a-half-year-old. And he said, I've forgotten the name of Moses' sister. Was it Marjorie? And she looked up and said, Daddy, you know it's Miriam. But there she is, four and a half, and she knows every story in the Bible. No problem for a five-year-old. A lot of problem for you to do it. But those who are formed in that way, they will be good. That's why you will meet in your professional lives 
people who claim to be wonderfully born again and were, and you won't trust them an inch. Rightly so. And others who claim not to believe, who will be utterly trustworthy, because they're third or fourth generation, shall we say, Mennonites, you know what their behavior is going to be like. You can make your children good, virtuous, to a very large degree. You cannot make them Christian. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. That's why these stories matter so much, why we need to take these things seriously. It also explains why we often lose the battle over societal changes, like the current battle over homosexuality. There was a beautiful piece in the Wall Street Journal, Opinion Journal, within the last few months, by a man called Lee Harris. It's a very, the Wall Street Journal online opinion journal has some quite good stuff in it. And it was called, Can Tradition Survive? And the man writing it, I think, comes from a Christian background, and he reveals in the last couple of pages that he's also homosexual. What's interesting is that he was arguing very strongly against homosexual marriage. As he said, it is an unfair battle when highly articulate, angry people like us argue we win, whereas traditional people who have no need to think through what they do because it is traditional don't know what to say. It doesn't change them, and when we change the world around them without their permission, they will understandably get angry. Furthermore, he goes on to say, we're stupid because we have it pretty good at the moment. And everywhere that we have dominated the elite of a society, we have destroyed them. Greece, Rome, the British Empire, you can argue that homosexuals had a lot to do with their decay. We need to be able to argue our case better because we have a duty to defend what is good and to oppose what is evil.